You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintzenmeyer. My guest for episode 64 is Mike Huberty, the lead singer and bass player for one of the big fish in my small pond, Madison, Wisconsin. The band is called Sunspot. You are currently listening to an acoustic version of the song Stardust from their 2013 EP, Arthuriana. Sunspot is a trio. It's been playing together since they were all in college. They released their first album in 2000. They released six albums going up through 2011 and then switched to the EP format, releasing five of those between 2013 and 2015, which were then released with another three songs on Weirdest Hits 2015. Since then, they put out two more EPs, and we're going to talk about the song Sulphur off the most recent EP, 2017's The Wilderness of Almost Was and Never Were, then move to Saturday Night Gospel from the 2014 Dangerous Times EP, and then move back to Prozac Girl, which appeared on their first album, but the version we're going to listen to is from their second album, 2003's Loser of the Year. We'll conclude by listening to We Are the Darkness from the 2011 album The Slingshot Effect. You can learn more about the band at sunspotuniverse.com. And you should also know that Mike, along with his drummer, Wendy Lynn Stotts, run a podcast called See You on the Other Side. You can learn about that on othersidepodcast.com. Learn more about this podcast at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And please support our efforts by going to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic and signing up for a little donation. So we'll have listened to a little bit of this uh, nice, quiet Stardust tune from Arthuriana 2013. We're going to get very quickly to Sulphur from the new EP, The Wilderness of Almost Was and Never Were 2017. Now, I remember when you started, I don't know if it was your first one, but I recall several years ago seeing like, you know, we're doing our big EP release party. I was like, well, the EP, come on. But you've kind of convinced me that in this day and age, it makes more sense to be releasing, you know, an EP every six months or a year, you know, every just three songs rather than holding it all in and doing a 16 song, whatever explosion. It depends on, on what you're trying to do. So the thing is, maybe if you don't play a ton of shows, then getting an album out is more advantageous. But if you're playing a lot, then what you want to do is you want to have something new for people constantly. And you want to keep getting new stuff in front of them as much as possible. Plus, I find that writing a collection of music, like enough good songs for, like when you hit the studio for like 10, 12 good songs at a time, I don't know if I have that many good songs at one time. <laughs> you know, I think like it's like, yeah, it's good songs now. And then you keep writing, you have some better songs in three months and some better songs in three months kind of thing. I find it's easier to let things evolve. And then plus you can do an EP where you have things sound one way and then do another one in a few months where things sound completely different. And it doesn't sound in one album like too many genre shifts. Well, even in this current EP, there's quite a big difference between the title track, The Wilderness, and Sulphur that we're about to hear. Do you want to say something about your approach on this EP and on Sulphur in particular? What we were doing with this one is we were taking songs that were inspired by our podcast and then so we're kicking them out like demos every single week trying to find stuff that inspires us about the topic or conversation. And it's fun because, well, because you have to write, (laughs) you have to write constantly. And like, like today, as soon as we're done, it's like, I could have a song ready for Monday. That's the great part. But I think with this particular EP, we were trying to find stuff that were epic sounding songs to put together. So sometimes you want to be a little more quiet or sometimes you want to be a little more subdued. Sometimes you want to be progressive and adventurous. For this one, we were looking for ones that had big sounds, big choruses, and everything was anthemic. So then when you put it all together, you were getting a kind of 15 minutes of raise your fist and yell. Thank you. 
was the sulfur, it was the brimstone, it was the night. It was the blackness, it was the madness when you lost your sight. There are moments that matter, there are fixed points in time. And what you do right now will be with you till the end of your life. Be careful what you burn.
I know at some point you got comfortable even using electronics on stage, right? Is this one that you have a, uh, like when you do this live, do you have a steady backing track that plays all the synth parts so you don't have to worry about that? Yeah, well, we usually do a combination of our guitar players, also a keyboard player. So he has a keyboard right next to him, and so he'll do like half and half. The parts that sound better, like live keyboards, he'll do that, and the parts that are just there to fill in the backgrounds and stuff. But yeah, definitely we'll have a backing track play, drummer plays to a click, sometimes uh, sync the lights up. Because once you have a click track, the sky's the limit. (laughs) Once you're on stage and you've got that MIDI clock running, then you can sync a whole bunch of stuff you know lights and videos and to make it a a really cool live experience so this is one when we do play it live we do the full backing full synth and stuff so how's that been in terms of like even i found with it just bringing a keyboard to a show if you just rely on the house pa it probably will sound bad when you're doing this uh you know bring your own whole setup with the light sync to it and say a little about how that's developed well we work on that we do bring our own stuff so if it's going to be a show that we know that we're going to want to make it some kind of big production with video and lights and everything, we've done that in the past for a bunch of things. We tend to bring our own equipment. If it's going to be like a show with a bunch of other bands and that's not going to be possible or the setup's going to take way too long kind of deal, then we'll just pare down, bring maybe just an amp that uh, the samples and the keyboard can play through. Or if it's a, you know, it's a decent club, we'll be like, okay, we're going to play through their system and buy the sound guy a beer before the show to kind of make him feel like, you know, it's like, well, I'll put some work into this one. And then usually we find that as long as we get a, at least a couple minutes of sound check, we can make it acceptable. Like not, it's not like, especially in a lot of places we play, it's, it's never going to sound too awesome. But it can sound pretty good, and it can really fill in, and people can hear those melodies. That's what counts. And when you're writing this kind of thing in the first place, because it's synth-based, at least the opening riff, I mean, are you writing it as a sequence piece first, and then coming up with the stuff afterwards? Or could you conceivably, at least, you know, if not with this song, with other, just write it? You're playing guitar to a click track, and then once you've got that in there, again, you can still program stuff after the fact. Is there a standard way that you're doing these things? I think on this one in particular, our drummer was working on some kind of EDM exercise where she would work on beats and some programming, some synths and stuff like that every day for like, you know, a month or whatever. So then she would add some melodies to it. And so I was going through her, like her loops that she had worked on. And this seemed like a really cool loop. So I grabbed the MIDI from it and I put it on top of some different drums. I put some different chords underneath and everything with the electric stuff. And that kind of became the basis. So once we had that synth melody, it was taken out of its original habitat and then put into more of a rock habitat. And then we became more of an industrial kind of song. So this was written for a particular episode. I didn't catch which one this was for. What was the the theme you're trying to match here? So what we were doing is I interviewed a, a woman who had a paranormal experience when she was 16 that she was saying that she encountered some evil demon in a basement or something. Maybe some evil spirit. I shouldn't say demon because that makes her sound silly. But some presence happened to her when she was in the basement. She was 16 years old and she talked about the smell of sulfur that accompanied it. That was the, kind of the first, I mean, I heard about the sulfur at paranormal events, but then there was a whole bunch of different episodes where people were talking about the smell of sulfur. And so sulfur is like a cool word, brimstone, you know, anger, fire, like it all kind of comes together into, it's very, first of all, you say sulfur. And the first thing you get in your head is rotten egg smell or, you know, somebody's had a like a rough night and you're hanging out with them the next day and they smell nasty. But that kind of smell, that sulfur, elicits a strong reaction just in the words. Like a cool title. Let's see how we can build something around that. Then it was like, okay, let's think of some words to go with it. And words found a melody when I was looking through loops to spark something into the song. So we kind of knew 
the title we wanted to go for. And then it was finding the right sound that could represent that feeling that sulfur elicits, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, and I don't usually think of, if you're writing a demon Halloween song or something, then you wouldn't gravitate toward, these are moments of existential import, that <laughs> what, what you do here will be with you to the end of time, all you'll taste is sulfur of how right you thought you were. I know that's kind of the, your modus operandi. It's not that you're writing literally, you're not writing you know, something that could be a musical of the episode or something. It's a <laughs> something that is still like a song that could mean something to a person that's <laughs> not specific to the story. Yeah, and a lot of it is finding the ordinary and the fantastic. So, so the, the sulfur is the smell of burning. Well, what happens when you burn something? If it's a human relationship, you usually regret it. <laughs> you know, if it's if it's a bridge with another person, uh, it usually comes with regrets. And so, getting that feeling out of it, this is what it represents in a paranormal sense, and this is what it represents in a human sense. And I think that's what we're trying to make that bridge happen. Because I like to use as many supernatural metaphors in regular life as possible. You know, why not translate that into music too? And I'm impressed that even though it's about burning bridges, the word bridge is nowhere in here that you avoided. <laughs> don't mix that the extra metaphor. You don't there's plenty of right, things you but, could burn. So first do you have the song more or less front to back before you've got complete lyrics or are, what's the sequence in here in terms of how many courses do we need is really the A lot of it is when you start working on it, so we do something for the show, it's the idea of it's almost coming up with half a song early in the week. And so you get an idea and you process it. It's like, okay, let's get a verse down. Let's get a, let's get a pre-chorus and let's get a chorus. And usually if you have something that has a strong chorus or a, a strong hook somewhere in there, even if the verse is kind of crapola or whatever, you can be like, okay, I can work on the verse. I can make the verse acceptable if I got a strong chorus. If you don't have a strong chorus to start out with or a you know, strong hook, then you find yourself trying to massage all the parts just to make something mediocre. I mean, half the time. But if you have something strong that everybody's like excited about it and you go in there and the rising tide lifts the rest of the boat. So even if the original demo isn't that exciting in parts of the song, if you do have a part that is exciting, you'll find yourself working harder on those other parts to make them as great as your favorite part of the track. So with these, what we do is come up with a verse and chorus early in the week, see if everybody likes it. And everybody's like, hey, that's a cool idea. Then we pursue it and try to add a second verse, second chorus, maybe a bridge. Then we just put it on the show. And we take the stuff that we like best from the show, and then we develop it further, you know, adding maybe an outro, extended bridge, new guitar solos, new, you know, new vocals over areas. And uh, then we take that into the studio and give it the full rock and roll treatment. So that's a surprisingly multi-stage process for something that you have to do every week. <laughs> this is yeah. I had aimed. I put a one of my songs at the end of my my podcast, which was only coming out once every three weeks for a long time. Mostly drawing from the back catalog. I did try for some things like okay, I'll write something. The, the this week's reading suggests something. I'll write something based on that. But the only way that I could really do that was to just over a course of maybe three days just immerse myself and just record a lot of stuff, maybe send it out to have some people contribute some parts on the internet if they can do it fast enough, you know, but they have like a, a night over, but there was never any question, you know, maybe I would do a version on my phone or something first if I was writing it together, maybe, but really if, <laughs> if it was going to be something that was not going to develop over time and I'm going to write a bit and then introduce it to the band and then we're going to play with it a while and then we'll six months later figure out what's the best way to record it. If it's not going to have that natural, long, organic thing, then it really ends up, most of the time, for me being you know, a purely solo thing, or at least a purely 
one stage thing so that there's no room if I decide I want to add an extra course at the end. Well, either I'm cutting and pasting, you know, no, I already laid down the rhythm guitar. It's there. That's it. <laughs> so I'm very impressed that you guys, I mean, how, how many times a week are you guys getting together or, you know, to make this kind of thing happen? Or is this a lot remote action? Almost everything is remote. Okay. Um, we get together, usually when it's rehearsal time, it's we're preparing something for a, a live performance or, or we're preparing something for the studio. So we know that we're going to be playing together tonight at a show. So last night, okay, let's go through the set list we're going to play. I mean, we have like original songs. We have like 150 or something stupid of like original songs. So a lot of times it'll be like, okay, do we want to play this song. Oh, man. What do we actually remember? Right, we haven't played this song in two years. Okay, let's go back and grab it. So a lot of it is really just somebody like, hey, I can stick my guitar in and I can record this on the phone right now at lunch. Or my kid's asleep. Okay, I got an hour and a nap. Let me see if I can grab a couple of verses right now. And, you know, everybody does it at their own schedule. And the idea is just when it's podcast time, it's usually right up against the wire and I'm doing some kind of rough mix right until the podcast goes out. So everything is credited as written by the group, right? And is that just so that you can be completely free and don't have to worry about, you know, it's like Lennon and McCartney, they don't, it's not that they actually wrote everything together, it's that they don't want to have to bother to document. <laughs> yeah, everybody contributes something, always. And I think a lot of it is, I mean, we've been playing together for a really long time and I've been playing together with a guitar player since we were 14 years old. So we don't even think about it. It's like, yeah, well, we write this as a group. It comes together. The recording's going to go in as a group. If we're going to get royalties on something, we all contributed something to it. So I, I think you get to a point, if there were five people in the band, then I'd be like, hey, the tambourine player or whatever doesn't get that, you know, like... Or the new guy, or yeah, if you're going to have, you know, the Sunspot touring band where it's the three of you are Sunspot plus, and then... Right, like they're not going to get it. But I think about that with Van Halen, the early Van Halen stuff. Actually, all the Van Halen stuff till David Lee Roth left. Everybody gets 25, you know, this is David Lee Roth, Michael Anthony, Alex Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen. And I know that, you know, that Michael Anthony wasn't writing anything, but he still got 25% of everything because he was part of the band. They're part of the group and they came up together and they worked together. And the team, the gestalt, uh, <laughs> you know, the gestalt thing of, of royalties that, uh, the whole is better than the sum of its parts. Let's turn to the second song, Saturday Night Gospel from Dangerous Times, another EP 2014, which I also like the, so you're doing these EPs, but then every once in a while, well, at least you've once collected them together in this one big greatest hits album, but it's all of them, right? It's pretty much everything. Maybe not the Spanish version of Chupacabra, but it's the just about every track off of the last bunch. So is that just, you know, to be able to more easily have a thing to then sell or send to radio stations? What is the... Well, you added some extra songs to the front of that, right? Right. So that was five EPs, then we added the sixth EP, and then we presented them together as Weirdest Hits. And we're about to do that with actually the past two EPs, and then the next one we'll put together, and we don't even get to call it yet, but we're going to go to record that in the studio next week. And it's basically just so we don't have to get, keep reprinting EPs for live shows, so that you have, now you have an album, you can just be like, hey, well, you know, I want to buy your album. Bingo. Instead of like, no, you can get three EPs here for $10 or two for seven. You know, it really is just to make it easy on merch. Plus, it's fun. It's really fun to have a like a good looking CD cover. And it's fun to put everything together and, and to revisit it as a whole. And I think people have an easier time relating to that than a series of small things over time, even though once they get into it, they might be like, oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the next release. But then if they follow you every every month or every couple months, but if somebody that only follows you every couple of years and they see six new recordings when they go see in a concert, it's much easier for them to be like, no, I'll just, I'll just take the one thing that puts it all together. 
So it's a merch decision. Well, and has the, has the merch crashed? You're still printing CDs in batches of 100 and getting rid of them? or <laughs> Absolutely. Like At a band for what we're doing and the places we play, the CDs and merchandise and T-shirts and that whole thing is still real. Like I mean, Taylor Swift doesn't care about CDs you know, because her Spotify payments add up. But I'll tell you one thing. So we just did a show at the Crystal Grand at, in the Dells, and that was fun. But because it was opening up for a, a national or whatever, there was people who were coming from different cities and some people who had seen us before. And one guy I hadn't seen in a couple of years comes up to me and he's like, great show. And he's looking at the merchandise and he's like, oh yeah, well, you know, all those Spotify plays are for me. He's like, I feel like I have the CD already. All his Spotify plays don't add up to one CD sale, you know? And so I would rather sell this guy a disc that he can put in his you know, CD player than get the 30. I mean, he could play it a thousand times and I'm going to make less than a buck. Or not just me, but the band. It's going to make less than a buck. He's going to play it a thousand times. Buy one as a gift. If you like it that much... Buy a damn CD, give it to someone. They're not going to listen to it on Spotify. So, And so other people don't care about it, but to us, the merchandise really does make a difference. All right, well, say something about this Dangerous Times EP and Saturday Night Gospel in particular. This one's a really fun live one. Number one, it's, it's a little departure, I think, for us, especially on the EP, because we did it acoustic, and normally we do like a full electric version of it, but we thought it might have a better, or sound truer on a recording than acoustic, than try to give it a full, big, epic rock and roll treatment. So like, we wanted to unplug it and see if it would just connect better, because it really is an ode to growing up with rock and roll, classic rock. Everybody of a certain age, whether you hate it or you love it, has had to deal with the baby boomers and their legacy of classic rock. And I just wanted to write a peon to it, I think. And it was part of um, the February album, Writing Month, where you try to come up with a song every couple of days. So it was just like a couple of uh, words put together, and then I made a little demo of it. And then the whole band, we started playing it live because it was fun, and the crowds really connected with it because a lot of the people who still come to see live bands have been doing it for 30 years and they enjoyed that kind of tribute to classic rock since the rock was on cassettes and the girls teased the bangs with oceans of aquanet we hung out in parking lots learned to smoke cigarettes then we canonized all the rocker guys i used to high speed up my tapes for all my friends 10 years on with nasty yeah we did it all again We'd preach to the country heathens who never understood those reasons Why I always wore a concert shirt And every Saturday night we went to church And we sang Amen, my friend, hallelujah Don't you take that name in vain Praise the Lord with the sound We haven't changed And there were mullets Just as far as the eye can see My blessed virgin Looked just like Debbie Harry Oh, we prayed Yeah, we prayed At the houses of the holy And just like John Lennon 
We all were bigger than you know. I used to high speeds up my tapes for all my friends. Ten years I went nasty, yeah, we did it all again. We'd preach to the contra heathens who never understood those reasons. Why I always wore a concert shirt. And every Saturday night we went to church. And we sang, Amen, my friend, hallelujah. Don't you take that name in vain. Praise the Lord with the sound that passed me until I drowned. And let a choir of fallen angels sing my name. For I do believe the song remains the same. We haven't changed. on cassettes and the girls tease their bangs with oceans of aquanet we hung out in parking lots and then two smoke cigarettes and we canonized all the rocket guys and we sang amen my friend hallelujah don't you take that name in vain changed you know you've got the high speed dub i takes for our friends when that part comes in it sounds like it's going to be the second verse but then after the chorus then you've got a new a new verse and then you do the exact same words again and i realized at that point no that's not the second verse it's the pre-chorus it sounds almost just like the verse slightly different chords but no this is even though it's longer than one would expect for a pre-chorus which is usually just a couple lines and then launch any thoughts about your choices in that regard in, in general? Those lines meant something. Like, you know, the verses on this one are supposed to be kind of funny. You know, they talk about mullets. I think the reason that um, those parts are a little more, uh, as far as re- repeated, and we take a longer bit of time with them is because, to me, that feels like the real message of the song. So in the verses, they're supposed to be kind of funny. You talk about parking lots and mullets and the kind of things that you did when you were hanging out with burnouts in high school or whatever, or, you know, I was never even a very good burnout. I was more of a nerd, but I still had a denim jacket and had a mullet. You joke about that in the verses, but the real thing in the pre-chorus is, is that, yeah, I used to high-speed dub my taste for all my friends. So you'd spread the music. You'd, you'd love something so much you'd want to share it with other people. And that was even the same thing 
when Napster came around and I was, you know, like 21 years old and I was sending our music out. I was sharing bootlegs of things and stuff that was unreleased from different artists that I liked. And, and part of it was promoting our own music, but also being part of a movement of people who were trying to hear stuff that never had a chance to hear before. Um, so I think that that's the, where the real message of the song is is that feeling so connected to that music, you just wanted to share it with everybody. And that's why, you know, to the, I have the line, every Saturday night I went to church. Because, you know, I went to church with my mom and stuff, and that was fine. But I felt a lot more connected at a concert with other people that love music than I did saying Our Father. The structure of the chorus. So I'm almost surprised that it has as many words as it does. That it's not just like, amen, amen. It's amen, my friend. And doesn't repeat the line one as line three. Like if you really wanted to get the maximum brown eyed girl effect of having the chorus <laughs> be something that the audience is going to sing along with you, three words is all you need and repeat those a couple of times and there you go. Wrap it up. But no, you've got some variation. It's very seldom that I'm trying to remember here if you vary them even between the choruses. No, it should be all the same. Especially when there's like a double chorus at the end, I find it very hard to resist switching something up so that there's, so it's just, I don't know, more interesting for me. You know, it's funny because you're singing about the going and being part of this group experience, but it's, it's obviously coming from a place where even though you're not actually writing this in front of people, you know you're going to be singing it in front of people and it's kind of made to elicit that and you've even got, you know, your bandmates, what a lot of singing in unison with you, you know, and then just diverging a little for harmonies to get that. Well, it's not quite a church feeling. You didn't get 10 of your friends. A lot of it was getting the feeling of, especially like, like letting it belt out at the end to kind of give it that gospel way of just like, okay, just you let it all hang out. And li- that's one of the reasons it's really fun live to sing. I can't wait to the end because I can't wait to just throw the voice around like it's a weapon, like, you know, like it's a mace and you're just flinging it around. And when, when you, it's that feeling of throwing that voice around in the crowd when everybody's having fun and clapping, it elevates the moment. And as a musician, that's the most, it's like a guitar, you know, again, the guitar plays a guitar solo and, and you know, Ben will stand on the chair or the side of the stage or something and show off and then just start shredding for a minute or, you know, go off into some big crowd pleasing like bends and everything. It's just using the instrument as like a blunt object. And that's fun, especially in a rock and roll setting. And so this is the kind of song that's made for that kind of big ending. Other songs are meant for like enjoying a, like a, a moment of precise beats or hits, or you want to hear the harmony and it's the hook that gets in your head. And some songs are meant for, okay, we have a melody here, got a bunch of notes, and I'm just going to hit the audience as hard as possible as I can with it. Well, it's hard sometimes to get that in in a studio setting to really get the kind of release. Also, like the place I noticed, and just like John Lennon, we are all bigger than you know, the way that the theatrical way that you kind of have to deliver that. Was that a first take thing or was that a try saying you know several different ways until you get one that doesn't make you cringe? The way our producer works, and actually we recorded all this whole song we recorded at home and then we had our producer mix it. And what he does is that he's like, well, give me four good takes and I'll put them together. And so when we're in the studio and stuff like that, he's got, he makes sure that he's got four good takes of each part. And then he works to find the best parts of each take to create the, the best part. So I probably sent him four you knows. And um, we recorded that in my studio condo or whatever on the west side. And with a, uh, not even that good of a mic. I think it was just, you know, the regular Shure SM, you know, 58 or whatever. But he took it in and found the best parts of it, let's say. Cause even I was listening, I was listening to all. I'm like, I don't even think I got one good take here, but he ended up finding the good stuff in it. Okay, so even the uh, jumping around high part at the end was pick and choose so that phrase one might be from a different take than phrase three. Right. Yeah, we just, uh, 
just sat there and I'm sure with the paper thin walls at the condo that my neighbors were enjoying it, but they got to enjoy me singing that at least four times, if not 10. <laughs> not until you go horse doing that last, hopefully for the night. Right. And t- until the, uh, the blunt object that I was laughing about is completely uh, down to the nub. There's piano, there's guitar, there's violin, there's percussion. And I know, you know it's your drummer who plays violin. So it's the piano and guitar are both by uh, Ben. Or are you playing piano on some of this stuff? I'm playing piano on some of it. Anything that the piano is fancy uh-huh. is usually Ben because he's a really exceptional pianist. But anything that sounds like it's simple, like a lot of the keyboard stuff and like that, I can handle. And I'm not a good or a live piano player by any means, but I can noodle my way around a melody and find something in there. And then Ben's always able to deliver that. We do it in a live setting. So when you're recording this in particular, was this really just part by part by part? Because it sounds like a very organic performance as if you got three of you playing live and then overdub some more stuff. And so, you know, if that was the case, because that's, I've been trying to do that with an acoustic setup but I don't actually have a percussionist. I'd be doing the percussion myself. So that's kind of a, really, if you're going to record semi-live like that, it's kind of ridiculous to do the percussion after the fact. But I'm also playing rhythm guitars. Had you run into this problem in terms of multiple instrument players? We almost always do, if it's going to be a, a rock song, it's, it's going to be full. Like the, the drums have to come in first. If you have a good drum take, even if it's put together out of several drum takes, and then you play guitar and bass to that take. But a lot of times we'll record like the bass and drums live. In a song like this, Ben just did a couple takes all the way through with the guitar, and then I recorded vocal over that. And then, then the violin gets recorded over that, and then the last guitar solo, acoustic guitar solo, gets recorded over that. And then the, I think the percussion and the piano was added afterwards, just to add some color, to keep it rolling a little bit. So even though you say he's putting a guitar first, guitar against a guide track first, or just... He's playing with a click. Okay, so just, he knows the structure... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we, we've already rehearsed it. And so when I was saying that we, we prepare things at rehearsal, a lot of times it's preparing them for how we're going to record it. So it's like, okay, let's, it's going to be drums and bass and not the guitar. Let's, well, let's practice doing the drums and bass together. Or if it's going to be the power trio as guitar, bass, drums, we want to have a one all the way through so we make it as organic as possible. Then that's how we practice. We practice as to how we're going to record if we're preparing for the studio. Okay. And then with the variations in, well, let's just have the harmony vocal line come in for this one line. And now we're in unison. Is a lot of those decisions made in the mixing stage as well, so that you're not even really making those decisions necessarily? Or what you send him is what gets used? We'll mix it. And we always, usually have an idea, if we've done the song live a few times, of where we like to have background vocals and, and like the little flourishes. But a lot of times, when you start getting rough mixes back, you'll start thinking, oh man, this really needs some thickening here, or I can hear something. And you let that develop over time, and then you can just start adding little parts in, little ear candy and little hooks or little things that make the second verse interesting as compared to the first verse. Or the, you know, to keep the ear from getting bored, you find things over time when you listen to the rough mixes back, because you, know, you keep listening to them over and over again. Because the thing is, once it's printed and once it's on the CD, it's like, yeah, you can change it for next time, but then there's going to be a few hundred people that have that version, and you want to make that version as awesome as it's going to be before the next printing. This is just for when you're actually releasing stuff, or this is within the week before you're putting something on a podcast. You actually have the time to send it out, get it engineered, get rough mixes, give feedback, have a couple back and forth. Because, you know, I like to do that, but that takes two weeks at least or something. Right. No, that's going to be for an EP okay. release. That's going to be for when we go in and we do a full studio setup and we have a producer work, you know, that we work with and stuff like that instead of just us getting together a cool demo 
and getting it ready for the podcast. Plus the podcast that like people are listening a lot of times at 64K, you know, not even, people aren't even listening at like a stereo 128K level. Or people listen to it, they'll listen to it double time. Well, that's, yeah, I, would have to, I had to slow it back down to single when it got to the song. But I know <laughs> that people don't necessarily do that. It's like less trouble just to skip it than to slow it down. Right. We also think of the medium. You know, I don't master a song before we put it in the podcast because it gets mastered as part of the Wendy edits together the podcast and she puts filters on it and all these kind of things. And I know that when the song goes in, it's going to sound different than it sounds on the stereo monitors in the studio. And so you try to give it to the best mix you can, but then it gets mastered when it goes onto the podcast in a different way, just like we would master it differently if we were going to put it on a CD. The CU on the other side release that I saw on Bandcamp, 100 songs. That's pretty awesome. So those are just purely the demo versions that it's not, if you then fixed it up three months later, you didn't swap that out. You just put the actual versions that were in the podcast on there. Yeah. So we just keep adding to that. And so we've had 168 episodes of the podcast so far. And we've used like older songs we already recorded. We've used probably maybe 50 or 60. And then for new songs that we've written specifically for that episode, like that week, it's been a hundred. And there's a couple weeks where, you, you know, you just do something that maybe isn't as intense as a pop rock song. Maybe you do like, okay, we're going to, it's, it's, we talk about John Carpenter this week. So let's have a John Carpenter inspired, like instrumental go through. And then it doesn't have to, you know, it, it can take a lot less time when you're, when you're not having to struggle for some kind of brilliant metaphor. You're just like, okay, let's have something spooky sounding, get some 80 cents, you know, rewatch Halloween and rewatch The Fog and stuff and see what kind of sense he was using and get a similar kind of sound and just play around until you find something spooky and do it as an homage. Or a Twin Peaks episode, I just like mainlined Angelo Badlamenti for a day and then inspired by the music of Twin Peaks and tried to make something that made me feel those same feelings I got when I was watching the show when I was 14 years old. I watched some of that for the first time pretty recently that the thing that most affects me about the music for that is that it's the same four music cues over and over again. So like this very dramatic thing that actually was kind of touching the first time continues to be used and just, you know, adds to that David Lynch weirdness of like, this is really making it sound like a soap opera because you're using the same damn cue. Mm-hmm. Well, I was thinking about that too. So you, you have certain things like um, if you take like some of Murray Gold's music for Doctor Who, there'll be some, like each doctor gets his own kind of theme that they'll bring back in episodes, but it's, it's usually produced a little differently. So like the way it is in one episode won't be the same way it is in the, the next episode. But David Lynch would be like, just cue up the CD and go. He's like, this is just cue it up. It's fine. And you, you find that, you know, as I was watching the new Twin Peaks series and, the, and they would bring back some of those original cues, he made you wait for it. Like, and so I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who watches it because it, it is something best watched without any kind of expectations or something. It's just walk into it and let yourself, just let yourself in to David Lynch, the Lynchian universe. When you go in and you hit like, you're just waiting for it because those pieces of music are almost like characters in the program. You're waiting for them to show up. It's like when the Fonz shows up in Happy Days and everybody, you hear the crowd clap because they've been waiting for the Fonz to go, hey, the whole time. Although the, the comparison would be the Fonz slowly entering the scene so that you have to kind of look away and look back to see that he's even moved is the, the speed of these cues. It'd be like every time the Fonz comes in, three minutes of the, t- the Fonz, you know, entering, sauntering, looking around, like thinking about putting the thumbs up, like, you know. 
Well, let's jump to our third song before we go too far in this direction. Prozac Girl from Loser of the Year 2003. So this was the second version, the second time you'd recorded this, right? So your first Radio Free Earth was that, am I guessing, that that was the indie recording and then Loser of the Year was the more polished, you know, redo some of the same stuff and, and have the actually distributable thing. We had a local independent label put out the second album, and so they wanted that one on there. They were like, oh yeah, we want you to re-record Prozac Girl, we want you to re-record Loser of the Year. And so that was part of the deal, that they wanted those songs on their record. I liked the difference of it. It's not that different, but you know, you got to sing it again. It was a little more in tune. It was a, it's, <laughs> right. it's a sharper recording. I mean, it's, it's always nice to... You get a couple of years of practice in there. So say something about, though, how far even before the first album, the 2000 album, was this written? We originally wrote it in college in 1998, and we just thought it was the kind of thing where just running into more and more people who were on Prozac. And I know that, I mean, that's such a, like a 90s cliche, like now we sing Prozac, or it needs to be Xanax Girl or something like that, or Zoloft Girl, or, you know. But when you go back you know, 20 years ago, I remember just being shocked that there'd be people who, to me, psych meds you know, was something where you'd get them if you were in a in an institution or whatever. Like I had a I had a relative that was in an institution that would take lithium, and to me that was like you got a psych med because you're in an institution. So when regular people started taking meds, it was like, oh wow, okay. And then you'd be like, young girls I would meet would talk about like, oh yeah, well you know I'm on Prozac, you know, and I'm like, oh okay, I didn't know that, but great. And it just was like, at the time, it just felt like, do the, does anybody even have enough life experience to be depressed about anything yet? Or I mean, it, it tries to be a, a matter of compassion, saying that maybe the problem isn't just in their heads. Maybe it's from external sources too. And, and it's, it's a lot easier to blame it, somebody's physiology, than it is to say like, well, what have we done that's contributed to this poor person's life that they need, now need to be on medication when they're 15? Just a Prozac 
It's always nice to look back at something like this. Like, are there any individual lines here? Any of the gestures that you're like, eh, I don't know that I would do that now. Or is this, this one stands up? I think I would have been a little more over the top in the recording. Uh-huh. I think that uh, when we get to the middle section, like we do the middle section live, or I mean, we, we don't play this one that often anymore. When we do, um, we try to like bring it down a little further, make it a little more intense, let the... Uh, let the riff kind of go and build a little more organically and until it breaks out into the guitar solo. So I think we were just at the time we were thinking like, okay, we got this bridge. It's a pretty cool bridge, but we want to get back to the chorus as soon as possible. So now that I think of it, I was like, no, it'd be cool. We could, we could let it build. We just let it like sit on that groove for a little bit and let the vocals come in a little bit later. Let the guitar have a little more fun. Let the drums concentrate on the beat a little more rather than just saying like, okay, no, we need to have words like music needs words kind of thing. And so I think, Today, I would just go a little bit more over top, and I think the performance, I could have been a little bit wackier. Wackier is a good word, but I, I could have given it more personality, I think is a good way to put it. This song maybe doesn't pale with age because it was so tongue-in-cheek to begin with, that if you've got something that you know, you're trying to be, and I think the previous song, Saturday Night Gospel, it's still fun, and you know, you're still mm-hmm. freaking out, but there's kind of enough serious that you know, it's sort of that line that like the black crows sit on. Like, is it fun, or is he... <laughs> unbearable and you know pretty much everything you do i you know just really seems to, that it's pitching for that area of fun that even if it's a kind of a contemplative song well it's got these 80s overtones or something that it's you're in a mode it's not simply a raw expression of angst or something you know that it's got some sort of cultural trope that it's slotting into which is the only way i think that one should be into heavy metal at all which is your source material right i didn't hear more than a couple songs of you from 1998 but that's where you were coming from you know it's funny the thing is we've always been a little bit of always love heavy metal songs we still love playing heavy metal songs and like stuff with the driving beat i think that the driving beat and a good vocal hook and feeling that aggression is just is really fun and 
Right. I mean, heavy metal can be so ridiculous. And even I think about our older heavy metal songs, even our more modern heavy metal songs. We've got a song called The Messiah Complex. And it's tongue-in-cheek because it was kind of written about, um, it was inspired about a podcast about the Pope doing UFO disclosure because that was a rumor that was going around a couple of years ago that the Pope was going to actually spur UFO disclosure by the governments of the of the world, and he was going to start it up. So Pope Francis was going to be the one behind letting us know that ET has already landed in our backyard, and it kind of ended up being a, a song about the church, also about Arthur C. Clarke's childhood's end, like all kind of thrown together into a work that is kind of like a pounding heavy metal song. And whenever we do stuff like that, it almost feels like you can't take it too seriously because then you're, you know, and I love Dio, but like ride the tiger. Like, what's he even talking about? What the hell is Holy Diver about? You've been gone too long in the midnight sea. It's pretty, but I don't even know. What he's, like you relate to it because you enjoy the sound of the music and the aggression and maybe the vocal and maybe the imagery. But as far as finding a way to connect with it on an emotional level. So I think the irony is what helps you connect with it on an emotional level when it comes to a metal song. I mean, do you know enough metalheads to find some that would be offended by Spinal Tap? Because all the, like that's the way that I like metal, is through that sure. ridiculousness and through Weezer and you guys and bands like that, where they're using that and... Yeah, again, where it was coming from in, in the 70s, like, well, it was coming straight from cocaine or something. Like, it's not... And, well, it was coming straight from... When you hear Ozzy talk about it, he talks about Black Sabbath as he's like, we were just a heavy blues band. Like, they just took blues to the next progression for them, which was the distorted guitar and the... Because, I mean, really, it's all pentatonic scales and everything when you think about old Black Sabbath. When you think about Led Zeppelin, they were just finding ways to take some of that bluesish music and turning everything up to 11. So I really do feel that they probably didn't realize how ridiculous it was to sing about the Misty Mountain Hop. And this is coming from a guy that wrote a song for Leonard Nimoy when he died. So this song, Prozac Girl, in terms of being within that tradition, I mean, you've got these kind of over-the-top guitar riffs, which are very effective. How silly can you be? Or something something like that. In terms of, can you be over too over-the-top here? Like, this is definitely tapping into something. I'm about five years older than you. So, you know, I was in college when grunge started, and we dismissed it as... Like, oh, that's warmed over 70s stuff. Sure. Like, but really, no, that should be a good thing in terms of it's 70s stuff, but not coming from a place of strict cocaine or something of having some irony and having not having to have the hair to match necessarily or the lip gloss or whatever. But I would think that if you're kind of too big about it, like I just read something recently about Weezer that his high school bands were like had a lot of shredding in them. And that with the first Weezer album, like one of the rules was like, that is not going to happen. So even though it's got that very similar sound to this Prozac girl, this era, mm-hmm. you don't then take off and go into a harmonic. You don't have Yngwie Malmsteen enter the song or it puts some sort of limits on it. I mean, there's a certain form of an extra level of tastefulness or something that, that makes it then into, okay, this is a nineties pop song, which is how I'm hearing this. How are you actually thinking of, you know, what's our sound at this point when you were in your post metal phase here? Really? A lot of it was just thinking about let's make the coolest thing possible. And to us, it was listening to a lot of like non like more nineties pop songs. And, but also taking some of that, like, well, what's the first thing you bought? Like, well, the first thing I bought was like a, Queen album or great like Queen's Greatest Hits or then then an Alice Cooper album so a lot of it was already stuff with great guitar solos and it's like you never want to lose that just 
just because guitar solos aren't cool anymore. <laughs> we never wanted to lose that. So I think t- to us, a lot of it was just, let's make something that we feel that sounds interesting, and then let's integrate all the influences, which, would, you know, for a song like this, could be anything from Everclear to, I think, about the middle section. And I think the middle section almost tries to be funky in a way that I usually cannot be funky. That was even in the in Sulphur, there's little drum things that you wouldn't expect. I mean, in Sulphur in particular, it's like, well, you've got a big drum machine. Why is there like a triplet fill, at the, you know, ta, 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 like at the end of one part, kind of buried in there? I didn't comment that at that time because it's not, it doesn't unbalance the song. But in this one, in that middle part, not only is there that weird punctuated drum thing, but then you sing over it and you match your vocal melody to it. Chemical imbalance that's covered by insurance. It's we were trying to be like, to make it sound as different as possible. Because it's very da na And so it's like, okay, now let's let's mix it up so that we can get to the middle section and people are still interested in the song. So a lot of these tracks are just a result of playing them live a lot of times. And you play them live and you saw that, okay, well, we didn't have a bridge here. And it looks like people, by the time we get to the third chorus, everybody was looking at the drink or they started talking to the next person. So mixing it up, adding something where it can be a little more funky or a little more interesting in the middle made the people who are you know, who are watching you, who are there to see the show more sure. interested. And then you think about the people listening on an album, you know, keeping their attention. They're not even there. To, they're just listening to your music. They're not even in front of you. Like, you got to struggle to keep people's attention when they're 10 feet away from you. So you have to struggle even harder when they're, you know, it's just going to be on in their car and they can switch to something else or it's on their headphones on a run and they can just switch to the next thing. So a lot of it's just like, let's keep ourselves interested and let's keep the audience interested. Yeah, I'm trying to remember, I, you know, I listened to the, the previous version and it seemed like there was still a drum thing in that area. I wasn't sure if it was quite the same drum thing. I always want to you know, redo a song later when the band knows it better because <laughs> there's a practice rehearsal time with the song. Maybe we play it live some and then it goes and it becomes its own thing on the recording. And in fact, maybe something like that would be something that the drummer decided to introduce for the recording. And then you would try to sing over that. You'd be like, wait a second. I, you know, so you'd have to come up with a part, change it up to actually match that. And then it gets introduced back into the, oh, we got to remember to do that triple thing every time we hit verse three or what, you know, whatever the thing is. Usually what we do is that, like I said, so when we rehearse it, we have a certain way we want to do it. And we think about how it's going to be for the listening experience on a CD or an MP3 or when you're running or with driving or at a party or whenever people are really listening to music. We think about the music in that experience when we're recording it. And then when it's a live show, a lot of times we'll completely change it up. Like we'll change instrumentation. We'll have the drums drop out. We'll do an acapella part. We'll concentrate on the most effective melodies we can that make the most impact at one time. So there might be something where, okay, this wasn't even on the recording, but why don't you play the verse on piano instead of guitar? And we'll capture people's attention this way uh, in a different way. And then we'll switch or we'll switch instruments here. Let's Here's a way we can switch instruments. So then you get a solo here and the solo is not even on the CD, but it's something that in a live setting, we'll get the most bang for the buck. So we try to redesign it for a live thing after we designed it for listening. And that just comes down to trying to rehearse as much as possible so that you now have that version when you're playing it live that you rehearsed with instead of the one that you listened to on CD a hundred times. So you're going to do a live album at some point to just have the songs that are different enough than the old versions just to capture those somehow. I think what we'll probably do is try to make another DVD of a live DVD. We did that a few years back where we put together like a little rock opera of our songs and had characters interact with each other. And we put it together as a live show where we had like synchronized video and lights 
and you'd like talk to the people on the screen. We'd talk back, have the people on the screen talk to the audience kind of thing. And then our songs were the soundtrack of this character's life as you progressed through. And you'd have a point where you ask the audience what they want the character to do. And they ask, said one thing, they play one song. You said one thing, you play a different song. And uh, we did like a, a three-week tour on that, with 22 dates. And the last date was at the Annex in Madison. And then we brought a bunch of cameras and had it done as a, a live recording where we you know everything went to a, a live board before it went to the board out to the the audience then took a couple months together to edit all those videos and mix it and made a little live dvd out so i think we did a live thing again it would be that kind of situation where we'd want to show off the songs in a way that you'd also get some visual like the visual out of it the, the live experience and enjoy that Sure, not just the collection of bootlegs off people's phones. <laughs> right, hey, and if, if people want to bootleg my music off their phones, fantastic. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, we'll just we'll, we'll have to make them until then. You have to like sit out in the parking lot, pretty much, for that to work. Other than the phone, <laughs> the phone mic would be. <laughs> like, that's, right. Thanks well, for recording that. <laughs> I mean, I remember there was people. This is maybe ten years ago. This is a the thing that they were trying to sell at music conferences is that they're really like, okay, well, here's the thing where you can sell the recording of your concert to the people that were there as they're on their way out. And I'm like, the kind of shitholes we play, like, you're not going to want to copy this recording. Like, I don't want to copy this recording. You might want to save it if it's, you know, a special moment. That's the night you propose to your girlfriend or something like that. But otherwise, I know what it's going to sound like. I'm looking at the other bands at this place. I'm like, where are you guys playing that it's gonna, you're going to have a great sounding live recording at every show? Because I ain't playing there. I play out seldom enough that I videotape them all and kind of like the fact that that exists. But if I was gigging at the rate that you are, then like, you know, I've, I've read about people, uh, I forget who I was reading about this. Uh, I think it was the my first guest here, David Lowry from Camper Van Beethoven, was talking oh, about yeah. like trying to put it together. People had sent him boxes of live tapes and like just kind of what a chore. <laughs> like if you're going to release a live album out of this stuff, it's one version of each song. Like what, you have to listen to 40 of them like to, <laughs> right. to figure out what it, no, just find the first one that's halfway decent, you know, or listen purely for fidelity reasons. I would not have the patient, you know, you recruit fans to do that kind of thing if you're... Right. I mean, David Lowry is just a fascinating character, how he's kind of become, you know, the leader against the streaming movement. I just read his Tricordist blog all the time. So you think, and I was a big fan of Cracker and Camber Van Beethoven. So when you think about, I mean, how many shows he's played in 35, 36 years, probably, you know, since starting out and still, I mean, Cracker still gets out there and plays regularly. I mean, they were here for the live on King Street not too long ago, and they, they come through Wisconsin at least once a year. They play my buddy's place in Racine, McAuliffe's. And the fact that you have somebody send him 40 versions of a song, like I would just be like, yeah, that's... Thank you. Thank you very much. But you just gave me the worst chore. I mean, imagine like a lot of times you don't want to hear your mistakes. You don't want to hear things that didn't go well. And now you got to hear it 40 times. Like, forget it. Let's pay somebody to do that. Well, let's uh, introduce the last song. We've got a very theatrical one. We Are the Darkness. Oh, the Slingshot yeah. Effect 2011. Give us an intro to that and then we'll, we'll say so long. We Are the Darkness is really just a pop song from the monster's perspective. And I think we're thinking about the movie Nightbreed, which is a Clive Barker movie from the, like, one of, he's only directed like three movies, I think, the first Hellraiser, Lord of Illusions, and Nightbreed. And that really is a, a movie where the monsters, the good guys. A song like this, we just wanted to, we thought We Are the Darkness is a, like a badass kind of title. And you get to talk about vampires, succubi, like just, a, just from the perspective of a creature. And then also feeling that way, a lot of us sometimes feel like, well, I'm totally, I'm totally abhorrent to all these other people around here, or you feel totally alien. And that, that's what that song kind of represents. And it's okay to be alien because it's, 
It's okay not to be the same as everybody else. And this was, I thought I read the, the first one that you featured on your podcast? Yes, that was the, the first episode. We thought it was the most appropriate when we did that. We started the podcast uh, three years ago. So episode zero was the first one we introduced and told some of our own weird little stories and, and things that have happened to us as we travel and run into a haunted venue or, or weird stuff happens. And uh, we thought that this would be the most representative of uh, the kind of stuff that you were going to get if you decided to listen to See You on the Other Side. All right. Well, thanks so much. I really liked this song. I really enjoyed being forced to <laughs> really immerse myself. You know, I, you get a sense of complacency when you're in the same town as a van. Like, yeah, I've, I've seen them out a couple times. I own Loser of the Year. I, I note when th- new things come out. We're Facebook friends. But like, it's still, it's easy when somebody's so active to uh, you know, miss whole big stretches of stuff that they do. <laughs> I appreciate that, Mark, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about the music and also appreciate that, you know, you're out here also podcasting in this world. We're all, we're all trying to um, find cool ways to express ourselves and cool ways to get our stuff out there. And so I think it's, it's awesome what you're doing. All right. Thanks. And here it is. We are the darkness. Right through and never read the 